Have you ever thought about what it might cost you to follow such a dangerous God? I don't think the Lord's disciples gave much thought to it while he was with them. I think they had expectations of his kingdom um, that were only partially accurate. I don't think they understood what was in store for them to declare that they were followers of this Jesus. They didn't have to think much about it because he was still with them, but soon he will depart from them and their whole life situation will radically change. He knows this, and so he's preparing them for his departure. Uh, Soon he will not be with them physically. They won't have access to his physical presence, and so in lovingly preparing them for a reality they know not of. This is what the Lord says. It's in John chapter 16, verse 1. It says, these things I have spoken to you. And that obligates us, of course, to ask the question, what things? It it had been the Last Supper. It was a Passover meal. At the conclusion of it, the Lord and the eleven, because one who would betray the Lord had already departed. And so the Lord and the eleven made their way from this upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, and they made their way initially downhill, and then across the Kidron Valley, and they were going to a place on the Mount of Olives, which is famous to us today, the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the course probably of making their way there, uh, the Lord made good use of the time and shared with them lots of things he thought would be helpful to them. And so it says here, these things I have spoken to you. Again, what things? I think it's what we read about in the prior chapter, for instance, in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, the Lord told them this. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Those are the things, some of the things the Lord was sharing with them as they made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's essentially saying that most, many people of the world will hate the people of God. The people of God will carry marvelous good news, and yet they will be treated badly for it nonetheless. And so the Lord doesn't in any way sugarcoat this harsh reality which was to be before them. If they persecuted me, he quite clearly states, they will also persecute you. And uh, if you think about it, that makes sense. It makes sense for Christians to be hated by the world. I mean, if you think about what we believe... And if you think about what we declare about what we believe, you will see that the world's disdain for us is really a rational thing. It makes sense. For instance, 
uh, you are aware of the fact that we go about making the narrowest of claims. For instance, we say that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God. We say that Jesus is the only way to be forgiven of one's sins. We say that Jesus is the only way to be adopted into God's family. And we say that Jesus is absolutely the only way by which anyone could gain entrance into heaven. We go about believing and declaring that Jesus is the only way. Actually, it isn't us who make that declaration. We simply repeat a declaration made by Jesus himself. Remember when he said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And he said, nobody can come to the Father but through me. And so that declaration originally stated by Jesus and then repeated manifold times over the years by folks like us, well, that statement dismisses in one fell swoop all other approaches to God. Uh, Jesus, in saying what he did, clearly declares that the only way to be right with God is by faith in him, and thus by strong implication, every other approach to God is flat out wrong. Now, we have the gall to go about telling millions of devout and sincere Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and Jews and atheists that they are all washed up. They are wrong, every one of them. And you know what we tell them? If we really declare the full gospel, we, told that, we tell them that apart from Christ, in spite of their religion, they're on their way to hell to eternal separation from a holy God. Therefore, it really should come as no surprise to us that the world hates us. Many people believe out there there is only one God, and yet most believe, though there is only one God, there are many ways to him. But we tell them, no, 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 that's not true. We tell them there is only one God, and there is only one way to be reconciled to him. We tell people Jesus is the one and only way. And so this narrowness and exclusivity, this, this intolerance, folks, it drives people crazy. Now, people may something, say something like, I'm glad Jesus is for you, but he is simply not for me. And we respond by saying, no, you're, you're wrong about that. Jesus is for everyone, and Jesus is needed by everyone, if anyone would try to be right with God. And therefore, it should be absolutely no surprise that many people are incensed by that message and therefore want to attack the messenger. And we're seeing that more in our day, really, than at any other time in human history, Christians being under attack. Now, it is true that some of our brothers and sisters, some Christians, invite antagonism because they're harsh or arrogant or flat-out rude in their approach to others. I get that. However, even the most genteel and gracious and kind and tactful Christian eventually will be opposed by the world because of what he believes and boldly proclaims. 
So we tell people who think they are good enough to have God's favor, we tell them that they are not good enough. In fact, we take it a step further and we say only one is good. Only God is good. And so we tell even the most caring and the most giving and the most moral person, we say to that person, all, including you, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, the last thing we ought to be is surprised by opposition to us and by our message. We tell people that in spite of their religion and in spite of their good deeds, God is angry with them. And we tell them God is angry with them because they have sinned against his holiness. And we tell them that nothing other than God becoming man so as to die for sinful men and women, nothing other than that can enable us to be at peace with an otherwise unapproachably holy God. And therefore, don't you see, it should come as no surprise to us that people find our message to be narrow and offensive and therefore repulsive. What's more, you know what we do? We resist and we resent a great many of the things the world loves. So we are really huge party poopers. I remember when I was a chaplain in the army, sometimes I would come upon a group of soldiers on a site and I would just walk in and there had been lively animated conversation until I entered the room and then it was like silence as if they were talking about things they didn't want me to, to hear. I was just a party pooper because of who I was and who I believed in. I mean, we don't generally use the same language the world finds acceptable. I mean, there are certain words we just don't want to be part of our vocabulary. We do not participate in some of the recreational things the world loves. We don't support, did you know this? We don't support sex outside of marriage. We are not in favor of that. We think God prohibits it. We do not support same-sex marriage. We do not. We love the parties to it with the love with which we've been loved by Christ Jesus and yearn for them to be reconciled to him. We don't want to demean, put down, or hurt folks engaged in these practices, but we cannot support the practices. You know what else we cannot support? Abortion. Now, you can clean it up and call it anything you want. You could try to justify it on the basis of hardships it might create. No matter what, we cannot support the snuffing out of innocent life because even that life, little and wombed life, is life created in the image of God. And so because not only of the gospel message which we adhere to and proclaim, but because of our convictions about life matters, um, we are party poopers. And so people don't like us generally because we are just in our presence. We are a constant reminder to them that what they are doing is wrong. Shortly before his own death by crucifixion, uh, the Lord Jesus told his followers to expect persecution. And there is a reason why he told them this. It is, here's the phrase in verse 1, that 
you may be kept from stumbling. That's what he said. He said, I'm telling you about all these realities uh, that you may be kept from stumbling. And I, I wondered, but I, I don't get it. How would being told in advance about upcoming persecution, how would it keep the Lord's disciples from stumbling? And I thought about it quite a bit. Uh, they have been with him and had quite a messianic expectation. The long-awaited Messiah is here. He'll restore, they thought, Israel to her rightful place, and he will banish the Romans from the land, you know, all this kind of stuff. And they are envisioning really wonderful things in being connected to this messianic figure, this Jesus. They're anticipating good things and exciting and joyous things, and they surely are right, but only partially. You see, being they didn't understand this yet. Being connected to Jesus not only brings the joy of salvation, it also brings the opposition of the world. And so the Lord, in the very short time he had left, loved his disciples enough to be blatantly honest with them. And he doesn't want them to be taken by surprise with regard to what is in store for them. I mean, if they expected that everyone would welcome them and their message, then they would be quite shocked, shaken, when they experienced hostility instead. In fact, they might turn away from the faith. They might deny their connection with Christ. They might compromise to fit in. They might keep silent about their faith. And so to keep this from happening, the Lord tells them about persecution which would befall them in advance. I mean, imagine if they had not known about this and they had great expectations of this new kingdom to be established on earth by the Lord. And they saw themselves to be part of this inner circle who would usher in the kingdom. They would derive benefits from it, the likes of which they never could have imagined. I mean, this new messianic reign of the Messiah on earth. And so to keep from being shocked and unprepared for the opposition and persecution which would be theirs, the Lord tells them of it in advance. And so he says, these things... I have spoken to you that you may be kept from stumbling. One of the most difficult things a new believer will run into is the surprising hostility of friends and family to his or her newfound faith in Christ. Uh, he remembers how friends and family always typically were thrilled in the past when good things came his way, but now when he tells them about Christ coming his way, well, they don't seem to be very thrilled about it at all. And so this new believer, if left unprepared, if given the wrong expectation of things, he could be caused to stumble. Better to give even that new believer a note of reality about the possible negative reactions of even friends and family. Now, because of what the Lord has revealed in advance, there's no reason not for us today, to stumble when the world may oppose us because we have all been warned in advance. Now, there is a very great danger, it seems to me, that we ought to be aware of, and here's what it is. It's the temptation, I think, to vainly look for a way to be both loyal to God and on good terms with the world system. 
I find that that cannot be done. You see, to be a friend of Jesus is in fact to be an enemy of the world. He tells us this. Now notice something about our, unique about our leader, Jesus Christ. Leaders of other religious movements rarely guarantee their potential followers of persecution. They rarely say that. You see, they're trying to persuade people to get on board to join the movement, and a guarantee of opposition and persecution, I think, is not the best marketing tool for that religious movement, and yet the Lord Jesus is quite honest about it. And so what is usually emphasized by false religious leaders is happiness and rewards and benefits which will accrue to the account of one who adheres to that religious system, who joins up. But our leader, Jesus, is different. He's quite honest about, yes, the blessings, but also the burdens that will come our way for merely bearing his name. And that's what he did in advance to keep his early followers, and by extension, us, from being surprised, shocked, even unprepared by what may come our way because loyalty Christ is the only way, and he says that will cost you. In fact, look just at how honest the Lord Jesus is in this context. Verse 2, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue. It's a little difficult for us to appreciate the ramifications of that statement being a couple thousand years removed from this day and this culture. It meant quite a bit. See, the synagogue was a very special place in Jewish life then, even now. Some rabbis, in fact, taught that prayers uttered to God are ineffective unless offered in the synagogue. And so to be unsynagogued, to be put out of the synagogue, was quite costly. It was much more than just religious excommunication. It was kind of a social excommunication. Along with it, you could be separated from your family. You would lose your job. You would not have the same friendships. You were like a spiritual leper. You were reduced, therefore, in many cases, to beg in order to survive. And you wouldn't even be given the privileges of an honorable honorable burial when you died. And speaking of death, by the way, you might face that as well. So the Lord says, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. So the Lord tells them in advance that they will not only be unsynagogued, they might even be murdered. And here is something quite disturbing about the whole thing. The one who will persecute followers of Jesus, according to what we're reading here, will, these are the Lord's words, will think that he is offering service to God. Isn't that crazy? Persecution of God's people will come from people who think they are actually pleasing God in doing so. And historically, this in fact has been true Throughout the ages, the persecution of God's people has almost always been at the hands of religious people who think they are serving God. Here's a very clear example of it. Paul himself, before he was radically saved. Listen to this, Acts chapter 8, 
verses 1 to 3. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen. He was killed for the faith. And they made loud lamentation over him. But Saul, that's Paul, began ravaging the church, entering, imagine this, house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Rabbi Shaul. Paul thought he was actually being faithful to the Jewish religion by persecuting, by hunting down, and by imprisoning followers of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And in more modern times, I'll make a statement that could be offensive, I don't know, but it's borne out by the facts. In our day, the number one persecutor of Christians, the number one religion um, to which persecution of Christians is attributed is Islam. Some refer to it as a religion of peace. It's not borne out either by the holy book the Quran that Islamic people adhere to, nor is it borne out by the facts. I don't have anything against Islamic Muslim people. By no means, I'm just telling you, a good Muslim has to target people like you and I. And in the course of doing so, they think they are pleasing Allah. We are the infidels. I'll never forget as long as I shall live on a trip to Israel, we happened to be there in Jerusalem during the Islamic holy period known as Ramadan, a time of prayer and fasting. And so the streets of Jerusalem were filled with Muslim people who had come from all over the Middle East on this occasion. I was leading our group through the streets and, and the Muslim people were pointing to us and almost in unison, they were shouting, infidels, infidels, infidels. One thing I cannot criticize them for is lack of sincerity. They sincerely believed that Allah was pleased with their antagonism towards us. They clearly believed that we were violating the teachings and ways of Allah they thought for sure in opposing us and even in doing more vicious things worldwide to believers of Christ Jesus, they really think they have the favor of God. And so we can see the Lord is absolutely correct in stating those who persecute you will think they are offering service to God. Did you know those who call themselves Christians in the Middle East are a threatened group of people in places like Bethlehem, Bethlehem, a Christian presence is fast disappearing. While the world's attention is on Israel, it being accused of being an apartheid oppressive state, the world is looking the other way. Oh no, it's Islamic leadership snuffing out any evidence of Christ Jesus in the Middle East. Of course, they won't succeed, but that's the effort. And so the Lord is correct in the name of religion. They think they're pleasing God by opposing those who bear the name of Christ. Now, why does this happen? I think it's because Satan, who hates people having a personal relationship with God, loves people being religious. Therefore, he is the author 
of the world's false religions, and he works through false religions to persecute followers of Christ Jesus. Now, we in the West, in America, haven't had much of this that we're talking about. We've enjoyed rather favored positions in our culture. Therefore, we may have a hard time relating to what the Lord here is saying to us in this passage. However, I think things have changed and are rapidly changing for us. I don't mean to be a uh, scaremonger, but I think this is factual. Uh, The day seems to be coming for us as believers even in the West when we will be able to relate even more directly and personally to this passage because opposition against Christians and our value system is really picking up. And what is at the bottom of people's persecution of God's people? Well, the answer is really supplied by the Lord himself in verse 3. And these things they will do to you. Why? Well, because they have not known the Father or me. So people may be quite religious and yet at the same time have no personal knowledge of God at all. And because they do not know God, they cannot know the true identity of the children of God. And so God the Son, Jesus, told us all in advance all of this. And why, once again, did he do so? The answer to that question is given in verse 4. But these things I have spoken to you. Why? Uh, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. See, the key to enduring opposition and persecution for Christ is to trust Christ even then. Uh, Therefore, to build up their trust, our trust, he tells them, he tells us what will happen in advance. Why? Folks, we can trust a God who knows the future. That's why he's doing what he's doing. Why is it, however, that the Lord waited until shortly before his crucifixion to tell his followers about all this? In fact, we read this in the second part of verse 4, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning. Why? He says, because I was with you. So he is about to leave them, and he now has some final things to share with them, And one of these things is about persecution, which they will face. And why is it that he didn't tell them about this before, while he was with them? It's because while he was with them, he was the target. As you read the Gospels, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone giving his followers a hard time. He was the target. They wanted to snuff out the shepherd, knowing then the sheep would dispersed. However, now that he is leaving, they will be the target. That's why at this point he's telling them all this. Well, our Savior, because he loves us, has told us in advance about the reality of opposition and persecution because he knows how dangerous false expectations can be. Now, though the opposition we may have experienced thus far here as Christians in America may not consist of the physical threats experienced by so many other believers around the world. Still, the Lord warns even us that some form of opposition for our faith is inevitable 
and is part of the Christian life. And if you've not experienced any of it, I wonder if you have been awfully quiet about who you really believe in. Our loving Lord doesn't want us to be at all surprised or unprepared, and so he shares this reality with us in advance. He essentially says it simply will not be easy to be a faithful believer in Christ Jesus in this increasingly hostile world. Could I tell you, because of that, we really will need each other more and more, which is a reason why it is intensely foolish for us to separate over foolish things. We're going to need increasingly to come in from the cold and the hostility of a world in rebellion against God to sit with, sing with, worship with, study with, pray with like-minded people. I think the Lord can use increasing opposition to our faith to enhance our communion one with one another. I, I hope that's the case. Here's the point with which we'll close. Let's ask God to keep us from compromising so as to fit in. A study has been recently done, it's terrifying, of millennials. And those are folks born from 1984 to something else. I don't remember. All I know is they're younger people than me. Uh, 47% of millennial Christians, 47%, believe it's wrong to share their faith with someone of a different faith perspective. Folks, that is not the way to live life for Jesus Christ. <laughs> they are, the same study indicates Millennials are so narcissistic, they believe that any opposition to them means people don't like them. And the narcissistic millennial generation is so interested in being liked, they don't want to share the gospel message for fear it will meet with disapproval. 47% believe it is wrong to try to evangelize people of other faith perspectives. I don't think that's the way to deal with opposition. I think a better way is to pray. Oh God, help us all to be salt and light, to live according to our purpose. Um, in spite of the world's frowns, to have the Lord smile is worth it all. He's pleased when we talk about him. When we talk about him, we show people we love him and are unashamed of him. Better to have the smile of Jesus in spite of the frowns of the world than to compromise so as to win the favor of a world bent on hell. Folks, this is not the time to be lukewarm. This is the time to turn up the burner and say, I will live for Jesus Christ. Why? He's a resurrected Lord. Are you thinking about it as we near Resurrection Sunday, Easter? My heavens, if all there was was the cross, then we would have to say, Jesus has been crucified. That would make him only a has-been. But there's more 
to it than just the cross. There's the empty tomb. And when we bring together, as we see so beautifully displayed on our campus, the cross and empty tomb, then we say, oh my, there's evidence that he rose up from death. I tell you, the cross and empty tomb were both there in Jerusalem, and if the declaration of the resurrection was not substantiated by an empty tomb, it would have been challenged and maybe not maintained for more than a few hours, but they couldn't logically explain the empty tomb. Jesus rose up from death. And here's the point. Because of what Jesus did, we can believe in what Jesus said. Here's something he said. Because I live, you shall live also. Folks, I think ours is the cross before the crown. But the crown will come after the many crosses we may have to endure for identification with Jesus Christ. We have so succeeded in trying to make friends with the world and being relevant that they cannot see a distinction any longer between us and them, and they see no real valuation by us on our Savior because we have become so compromised. But if we decide to dig in and be loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ, even in the public square... I think more people may see how much we value him because we're willing to pay the cost of discipleship. I pray that would be true of me. I'm not sure it is. I want it to be. I wonder if you would pause to pray that for you as well. Are you willing to count the cost of discipleship? Can I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes just for a private moment? You and the Lord speak to him about your level of devotion and commitment. Maybe ask him to enhance your willingness to identify with him in the public square, no matter what the cost. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what it cost you to embrace us. Please give us the strength and willingness to count the costs of publicly, unashamedly embracing you. Oh, God in heaven, we owe you this. It's a way of saying thank you. Help us to do so. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.